You're listening to Tuned with Alastair Atkin from the Atkin Guitars Workshop. I'm Alastair Atkin, and in this podcast, I'm going to chat to a few of the music industry people I've been lucky enough to meet over the last 25 years of being a guitar maker. Amongst them are musicians, songwriters, composers, and fellow guitar makers. Some of them you'll have heard of, and some of them you might not. Today I'm talking to singer-songwriter Ezio Lunadai. Together with his bandmate Booger, they became one of London's most popular support acts. They cut their teeth playing around the clubs and festivals of Europe and eventually won a major recording contract leading to their debut album Black Boots on Latin Feet. Ezio's currently in Germany getting over the virus. Sounds like he's doing alright now. Uh, I hope you enjoy this uh, conversation. See, where are you? I'm in Saarbrücken in Germany. Ah. And I've been here on and off without a break over Christmas. I, we, I went back to, to the UK at Christmas. My girlfriend lives here, you see. Okay. So, uh, yeah. And the first lockdown, I kind of got stuck here and then went back for the summer and stuff and then came back in, uh, in the beginning of December Went back for Christmas in the car because there's all things with flights. Yeah. Got tested because you needed, as you're well aware, being in Canterbury, I needed a negative test to get through the tunnel in the car to come back to Germany. Yeah. So I went to Stansted, got a test, got a test, negative, and uh, got some symptoms that evening. Oh. And uh, but I didn't think, imagine for a second it was the dreaded Rona because I just had a test. My daughter came over. Fortunately, I didn't go out anywhere, and uh, we, we got in the car the next morning to come to Germany with our negative certificates. Mm-hmm. My daughter passed it on to her brother and their mom, and you know, of course, me and my girlfriend have got. But as soon as I got to Germany, and I, I realized it could be that because I started to lose my taste. Right. Uh, we just got in the flat. Can you imagine bringing the British variant, being the first oh, to export oh. it? I just drove back. We just came in the car, got out of the car, took our cases in, and the car's still where it was, and I haven't been out the flat, and that was like the 6th of January. So, Jeez, jeez. You know, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. And now I'm official because my government needs to go back to work, and that she's been tested, and, of course, still slightly positive. So yeah. I'm, I'm having to quarantine as well. I'm all registered and all, yeah. <laughs> So anyway, that's why I'm that's why I'm Germany. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So, uh, what was it like crossing the channel in, you know, in Brexit, Britain, with the COVID and all the rest of it? I think it was about four cars. Really? <laughs> <There's nobody laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, There's geez. nothing to do there. No. I've got, I think it's probably spilling down my microphone because you're very loud. So. Okay. Right. I'm all lost in this technology because that's for for nearly a year now. That's all I've got. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So I, I mean, you've tra- been writing, haven't you? And you've been uh, sort of uh, putting tracks out on your on your Facebook and social media. Have you written a few albums? No, I haven't written anything. Oh, it's oh. not much to write. I write little pieces. I improvise instrumentals. I've done a little song about the old Corona. I've yeah. got four or five, six, seven songs that I have written, I'm, uh, but not as many as I should be doing, considering the amount of time I have at my disposal. So, <laughs> you know. Have you finished Netflix? I finished Netflix, YouPorn, <laughs> Channel 4. 
Okay. Okay. <laughs> <And it's, laughs> no. Ah, no. Oh, so so were you at the beginning of this? Were you on tour or about to tour? What, what yeah. Was the... We had a best of coming out that should mm. have you know, and we had like twenty two dates in just in Germany in the diary, and then sort of UK little UK tour planned. And uh, well, that just in one phone call, that was it. Yeah, it all just went. And I've also been doing um, some little gigs in Germany on my own with a guitar, like house gigs, mm-hmm. and going around with uh, you know acoustic guitar, effects pedals, and a looper, and going around and and just having a lot of fun doing that. And that's been picking up. That was all picking up, and I put together a little tour of that, and that was meant to start as soon as the this things started and that just went one by one and then yeah yeah oh man yeah i i I spoke to boo hudin yesterday yeah and uh we uh we were talking about this he lost sort of 80 gigs gigs in one day as well you know and it's just it's such a uh it's it's really been a, a horrible time for you guys and um and then now we're looking at this new situation with with the Brexit, and we'll just talk about this very quickly because no one wants to hear about Brexit for a long time. But and you guys tour constantly on the continent, don't you? Um, well, mainly Germany, yeah, yeah. yeah. We used to do a lot in Holland, not so much anymore. But, um, but also, the, what people have to realize is it was kind of going and doing gigs on the continent for us. We considered the same as gigging in the north of England, you know. We would literally get in like a 300-pound Saab and drive to Cologne and do a gig and drive home again because yeah. you could. And although despite not having any radio play or successful records for a few years, we just built up a following through live reputation because we could. We could go backwards and forwards. And the one thing that's wonderful about German people in general is if they like you, they don't care if you're in or out, they like you. You know, mm-hmm. so... I've, I've, and and if they see that you're really trying, <laughs> flying by the seat of your pants, <laughs> they kind of rather than uh, like uh, in Brexit Britain being looked down on as a bit of a loser or uncool, they kind of warm to you. And if they see you're really doing your best, they respect you for that, and uh, are very grateful for for their attitude. I mean, but we feel European. You know, we've enjoyed from minute one, yeah. from the very you know thirty years we go backwards and forwards. I think we've been good for the balance of payments for the country, you know, yeah, yeah. in our little bits, we bring stuff home and we spend it. Mm-hmm. I mean, I first, <laughs> I first saw you guys, I think we first met in, in Freiburg. I in... remember it well. I always felt guilty about that. <laughs> Why? <laughs> because you were like an up and coming thrusting guitar player. I'm a guitar builder, rather. I'm a brilliant player as well. But, uh, Thank you. No, no, but uh, credit where it's, you know. No, carry on. Yeah, we'll cut that <laughs> no, but, no, but you were really, I think, uh, you'd been making guitars for a little while, but you weren't as nowhere near as well-known as now. But you had the drive to come down where a couple of guys are playing acoustic guitars with reputations. But you came down, and straight after the gig, where, if quite frankly, there's, I've got to sell merchandise, yeah. there's girls to talk to, well, there's lots of stuff. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All that it was stuff. the girls. What uh, the girls? Uh, listen, the post. Why do you think? I, why do you think I do this stuff? Art, art. Do you think that's why? But I remember that gig well because I, I, my first—I'd never really heard you before. I think I'd—I'd yeah. I'd been given an album by a, a guy I know um, who'd come, come into the workshop, and he loved 
it was one of your first albums, and I can't remember which one. But um, and I and I saw your name come up on the billboard because I used to spend yeah. a lot of time in Freiburg, and I thought, ah, oh, these guys, I've heard of them. I'll go and watch them play. And right. I wasn't sure what to expect, and I was blown away by. I mean, I think you had the, a band. Maybe you came on and you did the first set as a duo, and then the band came on. You're probably, probably better, yeah. but um, yeah. and I, as a live act. I could really see why it was so contagious and and funny. It was like happiness all around. And you're right, the Germans do respond to that, and they they yeah. sort of they they're never going to criticise anyone. They they're just going to go, yeah, we're loving it. Um, but the other thing that happened a, a few days later, I was walking down the, the the town in in Freiburg, and there were a bunch of students sitting in one of the squares. And they were playing one of your songs just in a group of people. So I thought these guys have definitely got some presence here. So uh, yeah, I thought I thought it was fantastic. Um, and and since then, you must have recorded many albums. And uh, yeah. you know we we've encountered each other's each other sometimes. We just put on gigs, but the songwriting has never stopped. And uh, you you seem to be able to sort of keep keep. Uh, how many albums have you done? Have you done now? Uh, eight or nine, I think. Mm-hmm. Eight and nine. I'm not prolific. I can't write. I'm not like Boo. Boo's right. brilliant, and I'm, I'm a massive fan of Boo, and he's a mate. But he is a professional songwriter. He can sit down with a topic and find it within himself to make something beautiful out of that. I, I have. I, I don't feel as confident in my technique for that. I have to really feel it. And if I do something like that. It has to be flippant or something. I don't really reveal right. myself. I don't. I think it comes from being not one of the posh kids. Do you know what I mean? Uh, right. Okay. And That's then where you're not really allowed to express yourself, or or it's kind of frowned upon you trying to do that. You're not really your place. Mm-hmm. So, I I have that kind of if I can, if I if I actually feel something. If it's a genuine, comes from a genuine place, nobody can accuse me of being a phony. If right. I'm actually saying what I mean, then, you know, you can turn it upside down, you can do what you like, but it's bulletproof. And it's probably why I can sing those songs quite cheerfully 30 years later without any embarrassment. When I've written stuff, which I'm not sure about, mm-hmm. I, I play it once or twice at a gig. I look at the audience in the eye, I probably never play it again. <laughs> Right, you know, because, yeah. Yeah. because I just don't feel comfortable. It's like we all suffer from imposter syndrome and oh yeah, being, yeah, being found out eventually. So really, I rely on being as honest as possible, trying to give people entertainment when they come. You're right. I do mm-hmm. think I do really appreciate people, arrange, especially as you get older. People have to arrange babysitters or yeah, do all kinds of stuff. It's not as free and easy as it was, and uh, you really have to reward these people for their loyalty despite having no presence in the media people still come to gigs and in britain mm-hmm. and they're all getting a bit older you know they're all like Fucking <laughs> and i'm limping <laughs> and, uh, and the kind of it's still kind of stick together really yeah. so uh there is a kind of a bit of a gang feeling uh, that people that do come and watch us and that they're in on it. And we've always, like, you approached us after the gig with your guitars to show us. Mm-hmm. 
uh, people do find us quite approachable and they come and talk to us afterwards because we've always played small clubs where there was no escape from the audience. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. I mean, you so you cut your mustard, really, playing sort of the, the, the venues of London back in the, what, late 80s? No, it was the early 90s. But the, nobody was doing the acoustic thing. We were kind of the first people amongst... There was a little bit of a scene, not much, but we were, you know... The reason our act developed the way it did, that aggressive thing, that we were playing in rock clubs. So yeah. people weren't, not like now, like a singer-songwriter now, they're right a bunch of wimps. They're kind of, <laughs> and they piss me off, this low-energy thing they do and just they, they feel entitled that people should listen to. We didn't have that. We had to go there and, f you know, and the reason that me and Booger's firework guitar things was to win attention, was to get the attention. Then you could give them a ballad. Mm -hmm. So... As a result, our act goes up and down, is dynamic and rocky and stuff. It's not wicked. It's very lovely to make nice, like, acoustic tones because if you play it gently, you sound great. And that's been compounded by people recording themselves in their house, a bit like I'm, you know, having to do. And uh, so you can't shout because the, your voice, especially if you're as loud as me, your voice will bounce off the wall, it will phase on the microphone. It sound terrible. If you whisper and go on moody in the microphone, it sounds like a record. <laughs> <laughs> and everybody's recording the same way and playing guitar you know my live guitar playing is very different from my recorded guitar playing I'm, I'm having to hit it really hard I use the piezo I use the volume I make it sound like a bass drum I boost the bass whereas you can't do that it doesn't work on a record I mean it's very uh, uh, Lee Russell uh, kind of, we both know, yeah, you know yeah, yeah. he once put it really well that it's a bit like film and theater in that yeah, you have to yeah. be all, on the theater you have to be all brian brian blessed you know i do the guitar yeah. being brian yeah. blessed whack and, yeah and then you can just be like al pacino in the studio where just a, a, a light a subtle change of expression says a lot yeah you have yeah. to learn both skills that's very very true and you you see these people or these examples of that that don't seem to do that and winning a crowd can be so difficult for it can't it um I've got, listen, I've been diagnosed with ADD. I can't shut up. So you have, <laughs> you're you, perfect. Have to, you have to fight for space. <laughs> <laughs> I've been doing this, uh, going back to that, I've been doing um, an open mic for songwriters. I started it, I don't know, nearly 10 years ago in a pub in Cambridge. And uh, it was to see what was going on because I've been doing gigs for like 20 years. And in my little world of my own, I was thinking, well, Maybe there's new stuff going on. Maybe some inspiration. Maybe I can see a new direction. Or maybe just to be excited about it all. And there were a couple of really good acts came. But on the main, nobody's writing songs. Even the ones that sound really polished and really cool. A handful of songs in 10 years. Nobody's right. writing good songs. That's the difference. I mm. think that's the difference. They've all learned with like software and camera. They've all learned to really make a nice sound that appears to be about something but with there's no substance that's gonna get really dull really quickly and they all merged into one you know mm -hmm. so, yeah did you tell them all that that night <laughs> <laughs> well i'm the wrong person to do it because i was very encouraging and supportive at first but then after a few years i'm like eyes are rolling <laughs> no, not another <laughs> one oh yeah not another not another posh girl with a piano. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
putting all our most intimate thoughts and things to, you know. That world is where a lot of people do sort of cut their teeth, isn't it? And and sometimes you come across somebody who really is, you know, do you remember Kate, Kate Walsh? Oh, yeah, brilliant. Yeah. Sounds fantastic. Do you know what any of her songs are about? Um, I do know, yeah. <laughs> I remember hearing her for the first time because Lee Lee sort yeah. of recorded her first album. Oh, what a um, singer! Oh, incredible! But yeah, so sometimes these things do sort of happen, don't they? But um, I think it proves that most of us out there uh, are sort of so into the music, and and I include myself amongst this. That you know you want to try and get out and express yourself, but it just the and this is partly why I, I don't really do music anymore, is because the difference between a, a professional musician who has done, you know, cut their mustard do, doing the, the songwriting and recording and, and gigging, they throw their life into it. And, and there's nowhere else to hide. It's, uh, it's an all-consuming thing. Yeah, but the thing is, you do, but you're, some people that I've noticed on these things can be massively impressive for three songs, <laughs> you know, yeah. three or four songs. They've got three or four songs. You just go, my God, I'm gasping. That's so brilliant. The reality is, you know, we've always had to do a couple of hours, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. yeah. And then, just... and then you have to vary it. You have to have a big repertoire. You have to, well, I don't know. What do I know? There's a lot, there's a lot of successful people written about two songs. I mean, can we listen to me for, I've got my ass hanging out of the trousers. <laughs> Well, let's go back to when when you and Booger were were um, first out then, and and you're playing the clubs in London. Where where were you playing? We were we were doing loads. Well, the well, I first well, the thing was I was I had a I packed a job in in the civil service mm -hmm. to do to do music full time. I had about three gigs in the diary. And I went and bought Time Out, and I saw that they were doing like. Uh, at Ronnie Scott's, they were doing like singer songwriter night. So upstairs at Ronnie Scott's every yeah. every kind of Tuesday or something. So I phoned, I managed to get in there. I had to go to an audition in Hanway Street at Basker, whatever that is. And then I remember going to entering the the, the timeout new new act of the year, not realizing it was a comedy thing. <laughs> Did you win? We went. We got we got through to the final. We got through to the final. And walked out, and the guy who organised says, "Listen, it's a comedy. You can't win, so we're going to put you on last while we had the votes up." And uh, but we actually walked out. Booger in those days, he's a massive guy. If you don't know, him, big afro, had pink shirt, pink guitar, pink trainers. We walked out. I walked out. We got bigger laugh than anybody. <laughs> we, we were <laughs> at the Hackney Empire, and there was a, there was a, we were on between two acts. The act before was like an erotic trapeze act. And the act afterwards was called Elvis's Cock. Right. And there was a guy dressed as Elvis for three minutes. There was a guy with him going, winding the audience up. Who wants to see Elvis's Cock? Who wants to see Elvis's Cock? And then after three minutes, she's got it out. And that was it. That was the act. <laughs> Where is he now? <laughs> He's probably working at the BBC. He probably went to public school, Cambridge, Oxbridge, Twat, and in charge of everything. We <laughs> So you got you were out playing. Were you leaving London much, or were you getting out, out all around the country? Or, well, we or... started off. We were in London most of the time. We were like the in-house support act at the Borderline. Oh yeah, uh, yeah. We, uh, we used to do the main fiddle, the, all those places that were used to be going there. We, you must have been playing with everyone if you were playing. You know, supporting some 
big I remember if you were playing at those places. David Gray's debut album. <laughs> I nearly hit him. <laughs> what happened? <laughs> well, this is a true story. But me and Booger, in those days, we were selling cassettes. This was pre-CDs. We were selling cassettes, have a little case. And we just turned up. We didn't know what was going on. And we played the same whatever gig we were. And it was the, it was the press, re- it was the release party with all the press invited for David Gray's first album on Hut Records or something. And we walk out and I'm playing. And afterwards, the place goes crazy. And we're in the corner selling cassettes. I'm going, yeah, yeah, yeah cassettes are like three quid each or something. And David Gray started, but everybody's too busy buying cassettes. <laughs> and uh, I think he lost his shit on stage. But I, I heard him and we had a sound... Well, the lighting guy at the time, and he saw me because I heard him go, and he, he lost it. David Gray lost it. I suppose you preferred Bruce Springsteen and the sumo wrestler. <laughs> I, thought, I thought I don't mind being Bruce Springsteen, but I'm not having that. <laughs> so you know, I was a bit fired up. I was young and impulsive, and then I got like. Andy Keefley stopped me in Booger. All Booger saw was me running towards the stage. But um, now I listened to David. And then when I had an iPod and David Gray would come up, I'd go, that's fucking brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, uh, yeah. So I'm really sorry. But now, since then, since having had record deals and knowing how stressful those nights are, you know, where you have to impress people. Mm. I had Clive Davis from Arista come to the borderline to see me once and hating it. Right. I had Bob Geldof come in and walk straight out again because he didn't like. It. So I know I know what this pressure is like, and and I'm uh, and he was and he I, I have I've always had Booger that keeps me calm because he's just unflappable, and I don't think I could have got anywhere without him because, you know, if I was late for something, I get stressed, I go into panic. Whereas Booger's totally chilled and has always managed to calm me down. And like when I'm we're playing and like a gig's not going well. He'll say to me something like, "It's okay, it's okay, it's it's okay. It's not it's not going badly. It's okay." And I go, oh, "Okay." And then I'm cool. You need your wingman to. Well, it kind of kind of is like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I've been doing. We've been forced to work a lot of work separately. I've started a Patreon page personally, and also it, it is different. I, when I've done these little house gigs on my own, I wind myself up, and I know that if Bit was there, he would go. Because he's just, he can't, he's unflappable. He's not frightened of anything. And we'll go like, uh, he's always, don't mind if he's late. He don't care. He's just cool. So yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's super. That's super. Yeah. So when, yeah. when you got your, how long had you been playing before you got your first deal? Was it with BMG, was it? Was that who you were with? It was Arista. Arista. It was Arista Records, which were part of BMG. Mm. They were with the offices with RCA. BMG was RCA and Arista at the time. Mm. So, yeah. And it was a, and it was with the guys from that had Ensign previously that had signed the Waterboys and Boo before. Yes, yeah, and, yeah. And it was the same team, and Sinead O'Connor and the Boomtown Rats and all, pretty cool people. You know, the Waterboys. I was a massive fan, and just you know, yeah. as soon as I'd heard that it was the same guys, I thought I was knocked out. Yeah, I bet. So you you got that at first, and, and the first album was that um, the one with Saxon Street on. What's yeah. that? What's that called? It was called Black Boots on Latin Feet. Yeah. And then we signed to um, MCA. Yeah. Well, no, we got we got signed to MCA afterwards, then Universal, and then loads of other people. So right, yeah. So uh, when you get a record contract like that, 
what changes in your life? I mean, a lot of people dream of that, that sort of, um, I've got a record contract. No one really knows, unless you've been through it, perhaps you don't know what it really means. Uh, explain what, what that actually changes or whether it does sort of, it sounds good at first and then you're like, crikey, this is actually really hard. I don't think those deals exist anymore. I really don't think those deals exist anymore. It was, it was really hard to get a record deal. There were hundreds of bands fighting for a record deal. And when we got signed to play Nick Dingwalls, yeah. the BMI, a friend Christian at the BMI organized the night for some acts and every A&R man was there. Fergal Sharkey from Polydor, they were all there. For the year before then, we were on something called the tip sheet. It was a, it was a thing where new acts that people think are gonna do well up and coming, they get on this tip sheet, like 10 acts to look out for. We'd been on that for about a year. So every gig we went to, there was three or four A&R men. I got really blase about it. You know, we would we'd find ourselves, you know, being at the Apollo opening up for people, the forum opening up for people. We'd be all together. I was thinking, booger, if they, we don't get signed tonight, they're all here. Where do we go? And the week before, we just made an agreement with a manager called Laurie J, infamous manager, had been Billy Ocean's. Okay. manager for yeah. about 18 years and and it was a bit of like it was a bit like a charming brick top from snatch it's like east end jewish right yeah you know yeah. and very, but very charismatic and hugely funny i mean we didn't stop laughing the whole time we were and he comes in the dressing room but he also had a reputation for being a serious manager so then people knew that we had this management now and he came in the dressing room he says i shook hands on the second song because while we were playing, I remember it, there was a few people sat down watching us, but most of the A&R conoscenti were at the bar making a loud noise at the back of the room, if you remember what Dingles was like at the bar, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and I thought, oh, this is going terribly. But afterwards, we went there, we had a record deal. Wow. But we took a small advance. We didn't, get, we didn't really take a big advance. We perhaps could have done. But our management kind of went for investment more than an advance, which I, don't know, I think we could have got an advance as well. I mean, we were still starving by the end of it. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and uh, you know, we had this major deal, which um, we got a, a week later, we're in Eden Studios. Oasis are in there. We've got the big room. We've got Rupert Heine producing it. It's, we've wow. got the whole thing. And, um, and we'd been unemployed up until that point, we had, I still had my signing on book. Yeah. You know, yeah. and all the rest of the stuff. With, yeah. Because I, I didn't go to college. Didn't have, in those days, you get a grant. Didn't have one of those. But you had to use the system and be on the old uh, sausage roll for a while to subsidize your music career mm -hmm. at the beginning. Everybody did it. Yeah. It was just working the system. We went into, um, I remember being at Eden Studios and the receptionist coming in, Mr. Lunatic. I went, yeah, this is a, there's a Mr. Lawrence from the DHSS wants to talk to you, right? <laughs> and my ass is fine. I've just got like palpitations. And Booger locked himself in the tape room. <laughs> <laughs> and then I went out and there was, and there was Laurie, there was our manager there laughing his head off in reception. <laughs> <laughs> Lovely. So the next day, the book got filled out and sent back and that yeah. was it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So uh, you had Rupert Hines to do, uh, uh, produce yeah. the first album. Yeah. Right. He, he passed away, I think, probably just... Sadly, yes. Yeah, before... I mean, he he's somebody that I've 
I've come across many times when I've been into an album and I've looked at it and gone, oh, Rupert Hines produced this. Um, what was it like working with him? I didn't understand really how lucky I was to be with him, okay. for us to be recording with him. I, I became very ill during the recording, and so I, I, it was a really unenjoyable time. I lost my voice for the only time in my career. Oh, great so time. Whenever, when, whenever I hear uh, Black Boots on Latin Feet, which is everybody's favourite because it's got some of the great songs on I don't like it because of how I was feeling at the time. It brings back horrible memories. And I didn't really understand uh, Rupert Hine. I do now. Mm -hmm. And I think I just, I wasn't uh, clever enough to see. I could tell he was a class act and I could tell he was very gentle, but very steely as well, very determined, very hardworking and musically awesome, awesome, yeah. awesome. And, um, but he came from this thing where it was all a little bit middle class and gentle and electronic and studio. All this kind of thing. And I kind of, I come, coming from that kind of high energy live thing, I was kind of, you know, so I was getting a bit frustrated. With right, it. right. I can understand that there'd be quite a, a big contrast from being out there doing it, thinking, what, what, what are we going to sound like on record? And and you kind of want to sound like you are live, really, in 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 a lot of ways. He, he did, he did. Yeah, we did get a, capture some of that. He did manage some of that. But you know, I used to get frustrated in that. We spent four days at Eden's at this studio, and then we went to Paris. But four days. I mean, he turned up in a in an S XJS estate. Right. Have you ever seen that? No. Right. No, they made With it. Loads. And he had, you know, he had one. And he turned up, it was full of computer monitors, and he had the second version of only like one of four people that had Pro Tools in the world. Right. And he spent the first day linking it all up to this massive studio. In this studio, they had grand pianos, they had organs, they had all this thing. And he was auditioning sounds, and it was going and, and spent the whole day finding something that sounded like a ruler being pinged on a desk. And I'm going, <laughs> you know, and it's like fifteen hundred pounds a day. That's what yeah. we don't get. Yeah, which is your and money. Then, eh? Is it, that's basically your money being spent? Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. It got mixed at Metropolis. This record, mm -hmm. it was crazy. There was catering, and then there was cocktail bars, and there was all kinds of stuff. I mean, the music business is really different. Oh, I mean, when you look <laughs> at the difference and and like the having it large eh that was the that was the day every there was like two weeks we were there doing mixes yeah there was like one mix a day kind of thing and at the end of each mix there'd be about six or seven people in the room listening to the mix and the guys go oh, i can do your cd rom of the mix yeah i'll have one i'll have one i'll have one metropolis were charging 90 pounds each Crikey. for a cd rom <laughs> Because it was just before you, before that, you'd have cassettes or something. Mm. Then I just said to book, so it was just a 900 quid book. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you got that when the album finished and, and then it was time to sort of tour. Did they plan uh, what was the strategy? Were you going to go out and do England and then a bit of Europe, or did they ever try sending you to the States? What I mean, how did well, they it work? tried to get us, um, they tried to get people like Clive Davis interested because he was the, like, the Whitney Houston guy, uh, Arista in America, and he was really huge in, you know, but he didn't like us, he didn't get it, so mm -hmm. um, 
so that was that. But he was never going to get us. <laughs> I've got about as much in common with Whitney Houston as, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, yeah, it's another world, I guess. Um, they send... They sent us on a lot of promo trips to Germany, I remember, to Munich. The 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 German office in Munich, the BMG, there was Areola. Arista was called Areola in Germany. They loved it. So they uh, we got taken, they organized a lot of promo. And, uh, you know, we would arrive into like a department store and play to like four people. Yeah. Get given some free records. And we did that f- loads of times. Yeah, and they would they would fly you there. They'd send a limo to St to St Ives where Boogles live. And once it came to me and Boogle would meet, would be limoed to Stansted, <laughs> and we'd meet at the airport, and then we'd go to a record shop somewhere where there'd be a stage like you could do Mandela Day with. There'd be four people watching, <laughs> then then you'd be put back in the limo and taken back to the airport. Had bore no resemblance to reality whatsoever. No. Terrible videos. They made some terrible videos that cost like 50 grand each. So what's your feeling about how, how you know, the music industry has changed? How do you feel about the fact that, that you know, the record shop is pretty much on its arse and, and Spotify has taken over? Well, it's like they took all our income streams uh, systematically has been totally removed. You know, we would... So there came a period of time where we were still being creative but we'd build up a following through playing live and we could sell t-shirts. We could sell, uh, CDs. We could get good money for gigs. And then soon as the download started, CDs sort of went down a little bit and we were charging 10 pounds for a CD 25 years ago. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah. yeah. And then when streaming starts, then forget about it. And streaming is just like, uh, you don't know whether to actually have your music on there. Cause it seems a bit pointless. Uh, it's just it's it's just like a big radio station now that's got the whole world on it. Mm-hmm. So when when it happened, were were you were you did you notice a drop off or were you already kind of out of the the record company world when that happened? Well, you know, well a little bit. You kind of well, people were, hold, were like denying the inevitable. Mm-hmm. I remember being at a medium once where people say, "Download oh, it takes five hours to download an album downloads will never replace the cd like 10 minutes later you could download it in a minute (laughs) and they were in denial they're like a lot in denial and so uh what always happens when people stop selling records it automatically becomes the artist's fault it's like you know it's obviously not popular enough and then uh, you notice like you got the record deals were easier to get because it was easier to make music and put it out Mm -hmm. But um, they're not really record deals. They're not what I remember as a record deal that was, you know, that could build a career up that, you know, some old fashioned record deal. People could do three or four albums and not break until the fourth or fifth album. Yeah. You know, and it was it was perfectly fine. Or, it, it you know, they say, well, we're investing in this lot. And and yeah, album number five, uh, suddenly, you know, Dark Side of the Moon pops out. But there was a quality control because um, to get to the point to actually make it to be in the studio route behind that took years of, of gigging mm. and touring and working and you know fighting your way out from like this whole background noise of stuff but now you can the records can arrive i can record something now and put it on spotify in 10 minutes mm-hmm. and there's and how do you jump out of that how do you get noticed how does there was it was a it was a system that filtered out a lot of nonsense because for better or worse, a lot of A&R men 
knew what they were doing. The ones that actually did it for love of music actually championed good music and uh, could see something in it. And now, you know, there's you got that what what's deemed as a hit. I mean, I can't whams now. There's just like teams of songwriters that somewhere in Sweden knocking out this in generic pap. Mm-hmm. Am I moaning a lot? I'm moaning. No, I sound no, like no. I'm moaning. No, no, it's it's all it's it's all good. So uh, you and Booger haven't really seen each other much this year, I presume. Do, do you contact each other regularly? Yeah, I mean we do we do a podcast. We do a little podcast. Ah, fantastic! What's that called? The Ezio and Booger podcast. And we and, can get uh, it everywhere. Then you, yeah, I guess so. Yeah. Oh, I'll check that out later on. Yeah, cool. yeah, yeah, yeah. But so we t- communicate with that. Booger's had some issues with his mum not well, so he's looking after her. But we we did a live stream together, a couple of live streams together. And uh, it's like we we play, we've never been apart, really, because we you know, sort of like muscle memory now. We've done it that long. And for Absolutely. Yeah, yeah so yeah. Have, you, have you got stuff in the diary for, for next year? Or how's well, it going to work? Have you- well, we've just changed our uh, agent in Germany. And so uh, we're putting gigs in for next autumn to try and put out a little best of, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, spin the wheel again, see what happens. But it's it become now the records really are a vehicle for live because yeah, I yeah. think that's really the only income stream left. Which unfortunately, as as people that have got no business playing live, they're forced to play live as well, which then diminishes the experience. For the for the music watching audience, I'm worried that you know with all these naff people playing, it's going to put people off going to gigs. <laughs> I, I'm... It's like comedy. If you have a bunch of comedians aren't funny, who's going to keep going to comedy gigs? <laughs> I, I, guess, I guess that's true. I guess that's true. Although I I do think a lot of people who who go to see gigs genuinely love music, don't they? And and so many people will will be keeping an eye out for when you're out playing. Um, when when you're doing a a German tour, how many cities will you normally take in? Well, probably. Well, the last tour that got cancelled had like twenty two. Right. Yeah. So yeah. And in, so we're looking for that kind of number. Yeah, and that's um, in what in in a month or two months. No, you have to condense it as quick as you can because yeah. you can't afford to just stay out there and hotel it or something. Yeah, I've because I've got a girlfriend now in Germany and I've, I spend half the time here. Uh, it's you know it's different for me, but you know to start bringing sound engineers and booger and stuff, you have to still make it like a tour. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And do you ever take the band out now, or, or is it we haven't for a while? No, not for a long time. We haven't because it as because of all the reasons we've outlined. Yeah, it just isn't as cost effective as um, you'd like it to be mm-hmm. because you know it's rooms and and we've always never toured. You know, like when you're a young band, you can go all sleep on the floor, but I can't do that with Booger. You, know? <laughs> <laughs> you, you probably slept with Booger a few times though. Like, no, once, no, once, once, the very first time we went away from home, <laughs> and we were I was sleeping on the hall, and they gave me an inflatable mattress in Barnstable. But I had a gig in Barnstable. I took it over the phone and we were meant to meet a guy, a, photo- a bass player and a drummer there and play with them. And we had to have a rehearsal the night before and then do the next gig the next day. And so 
I said to Bill, I'll come round at four, because to me, Barnstable sounded like it was just off the M25. <laughs> <laughs> and then I got in my little Fiat Uno with Booger and all the gear, and I went, I looked, where is it? It said, it's miles away. <laughs> <laughs> it took us hours. And, yeah, and then that night, he said, well, I'll put you up in here, the guy in the flat, very kindly, but Booger had a sofa bed, but I had, there was like a wide hall. I think it's where he had a dog that was very ill and had a hip bone sticking out. It was like, it was just dying dog. It's Ooh. a dying dog. And this is, they put me on the inflatable mattress where the dog normally had its kind of thing. And I'm sitting there and I'm just, as the mattress is warming up, all I can smell is fucking dog piss and ammonia. And I got into bed with Booger. And Booger, I hope he doesn't mind me saying suffers from sleep apnea. She has to wear this mask that pushes air. Yeah, I've, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes. and he's on the sofa bed. And I said, Booger. I had a pillow under my arm. Booger, can I sleep with you, please? <laughs> and that's the, he says, no, fuck off. I went, <laughs> And so I slept next to Booger on the sofa bed. And that's the only time we've shared a bed, people. Ah, oh, well. It was like a real it. Eric and Ernie moment. You know, it's like, yeah. <laughs> Is that a pillow? Uh, <laughs> yeah, so, uh, well, that's good to know that you're that close. Um, so when when you're in the studio and you're recording together, how much do you play live now? So, I mean, Booger's style, I think it's changed a little bit on record to how yeah. it used to be. He, he's not quite as, as many notes per, per second, you know. And uh, not was not necessary in the right order. <laughs> <laughs> but no, but was was that a conscious decision by him? I mean, it, it it's not, not really. quite as obvious that it's him a lot of the time now. I think that thing was developed, like I said in the early days. That ultra fast acoustic thing was to win attention, to fight out, you know, to get attention in the rock clubs and and things. And uh, I think when we made an album with Lee, he, he I think. Lee tr kind of got him to try and play more melodically and stuff. Mm -hmm. And then uh, some of the later albums, I play a lot more guitar on it as well. And and live, uh, we re really enjoy using an electric because it has this warm sound that goes with the acoustic very well, as opposed to two very similar guitars fighting for space. Yeah. It's less treble and shrill, slightly less energy, but perhaps a more age-appropriate perhaps. <laughs> mm -hmm. Right, I see, I see, yeah. It's calming yeah. down. Right. But calming down, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, now, another thing I was going to talk to you about was I know that you like your cooking. I love and, it. Yeah. I mean, what are you cooking tonight? I've made a chilli. I made one just before we did this for tonight. So, mm. yeah, because uh, my girlfriend's taste hasn't quite returned. She asked for a chilli to try and get some Ah, some fiery some to try and try and uh, reawaken them. Yeah. Okay. Okay. But yeah. what what's your sort of uh, best dishes? If someone I don't have if, best if, dishes. They're all really... good, are they? I thought you were like. Are you not an expert pizza maker? Well, I've been. I lo I've, during the lockdown. I kind of dedicate, like many people did, sort of uh, dedicate myself into like perfecting pizza because yeah. But I, yeah, so I'm much better than I was at it. I love making pizza. But it's just a one little. I, I can't make it too often. I mean, it's just 
I thought the old Italian it. blood was sort of... Uh... Yeah, but there's more to it than pizza. It's like pizza's just one little thing. <laughs> well, is it pasta as well, then? Oh, well, there's, pasta, there's lots of other things. There's lots of meat dishes I make, Italian meat dishes. Go on, excite me. Well, there's loads, there's loads. There's spizzatino, there's like... Uh, uh, I like wild boar ragu with... Uh, What's that, slow-cooked boar? Slow-cooked shoulder of wild boar, you know, with mm. pancetta and some juniper berries. Lovely. And, uh, yeah, with some red wine. With a like a like a soffritto of carrot, onion, and uh, celery. And would yeah. you have pasta with that or potato? You can do. No, you wouldn't have potatoes. It's a potato uh, you, like banned in Italy, or, or no? It's not. No, it's not. It's it's it's. It, I think because potatoes, the way we do them in Italy, would be with rosemary and garlic, okay. and they're a meal in themselves. They're, it's, they're really delicious. How you do Italian roast. little roasty potatoes chopped up, or like a wedge, more like a wedge, like a rose potato. But imagine it in a wedge mm -hmm. with rosemary and garlic done in olive oil and but you would have that with something slightly blander i mean it, you need something bland with you could have a that, that ragu with either polenta or with with a, a wide long pasta like pappardelle or so do you make your own pasta as well then well i have i do i, I do generally for if i was doing a lasagna i would Mm -hmm. But I like dried pasta. I, I prefer dried pasta in general too, because I still like it to have some bite. So, so have you done any of your recipes on your podcast? That's what you need to start well, doing. Yeah. Is we need well, to get a regular really, recipe. Really, you know, yeah. I used to I used to write songs and play guitar for a living. Now I've got a big fucking cook in as well. <laughs> I, know, I mean, I've had to teach I teach myself so many different things, like lighting and. Um, recording and every you've turned into a one-man band it used to be just responsible for playing and singing but now you have to like film myself now i have to provide i've started a patreon page and i have to provide content for that so I've teaching myself how to edit you know on videos and so and what then, what goes on the patreon page then new material all the time or, or if i have anything new i'll put it on there mm -hmm. uh i tend to like uh do some live streams um, that are exclusively for Patreon, or I don't do any free live streams on the normal um, social media. People can buy into it, um, mm. but I'll do I'll do live streams where people can request stuff for certain tiers. I, I produce a T-shirt they can have. You know, people can commission a song or like a little personal thing or a greeting, and I, I tend to make little videos of songs and uh, put them out on the Patreon. There's a song I've been wanting to commission for ages. Do you remember the theme tune to Rent a Ghost? The TV show, the kids' TV show? No, I'm a bit old for that, really. No, I, I, you might not, but uh, well, yeah. I used to like um, Rhubarb and Custards, of course. I, I like the sound of that. But I don't remember yeah. Rent a Ghost. I think, I think I'm slightly older than you. <laughs> I think you might be, yeah. yeah, I, yeah. Uh, I think I've grown out of that kind of channel by then. You grew up in Cambridge, did you? Uh, no, no, I grew up in Peterborough. I was born Peterborough. in Peterborough. Yeah, born okay. in Peterborough. You were seen as a Cambridge band uh, or in in your Wikipedia, it sort of... Well, we are. Cambridge. We started there. Yeah. I mean, I moved there in my uh, early 20s. I moved to Cambridge and mm -hmm. uh, never looked back, really. Who else was around playing at that time in, in Cambridge? There was the Bible. You know, you had like Boo was always... a. From when I arrived there, it was like could tell that he was one of the chaps <laughs> yeah but there was uh, a lot 
uh, like little rock bands and stuff. There was a very mm. vibrant scene in Cambridge of like yeah. up and coming bands, much more yeah. than there are now, I would say. The festival was always a big thing. Uh, you'd sort of hear about it. Certainly from, from my point of view, I'd, I'd noticed the, the Cambridge Folk Festival was on Radio 2 regularly. I remember it being televised in like uh, the late 70s, early 80s. It was a, there was a television programme, you know, that Yuri's yeah. playing and all that sort of thing. Yeah, and you guys played that a few times? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think the first time I went, I played. I played in the club tent and mm-hmm. loved it. And and really liked it a lot then. Then it's kind of changed, I think. Sort of into, it's turned into a bigger thing, always sold mm-hmm. out. Right. But I remember yeah. it being quite local, still feeling kind of the, the not that busy, not a space to move around between stages. And now mm-hmm. people kind of set up these little villages of, uh, you know, foldable, cheap Chinese, <laughs> uh, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and then they sit there, don't actually see any music. They just sit there drinking cider, being festive with their little yeah. carton blankets over their knees. It was a really good festival wasn't it and i mean i haven't been there for a, a number of years but i remember you selling me a guitar there once you turning up with a guitar to show me i did actually i was going around <laughs> i do you know walking what? i think walking your shit around a festival <laughs> so I, he's, I, he's a gullible singer song right <laughs> i uh i think that actual guitar i'd shown it to loudon wainwright um yeah. an hour or two beforehand and uh i said i said would you would you like to try uh, a guitar out loud and, and he just said no, thank you, <laughs> and walked off. <laughs> but I was quite excited about the fact that Loudon Wainwright was there. So, and then I, because I'd met you in in Germany, I'd seen yeah. you were there, and but that's how that happened. But that that whole environment, they got every massive artist that you yeah. could have played at the the Cambridge Folk Festival. You know, it was yeah, yeah, very very possible that you know someone like Dolly Parton might be might be headlining, or you know these these big names. Which for for a band from Cambridge must have felt like a real kind of a, a place that we've got to do the festival. So so actually doing it, did you was it easy to get on there? I well, mean, you no, were a, big, it wasn't. a good band from from Cambridge. We kind of muscled our way in. Somebody kind of got us in via the St Neots Folk Club in the club tent. We've never played a folk club, but we right. played the club tent, and then they cut us short and then Booger's ex was singing and then she didn't want to get off the stage. And then there was a riot. Oh, always. There's always a story. <laughs> <laughs> There's always a story, but yeah. And then we worked away from the club tent and main stage two. And then we played the main stage several times. I've seen some great, I've seen Van Morrison. There was always a hero. I saw, yeah. I, you learn a lot seeing these people. You learn a lot. I remember, we were doing all this heavy, you know, this fast getting attention stuff. And I went and I saw, went and watched Christy Moore. Oh, yeah. And he yeah. could hold people's attention with a whisper. And I thought, I've just been using too much energy. It's like, you know. It, I, it's a masterclass, <laughs> isn't it? Yeah. And I'm going, wow. And, and everybody was just transfixed. Yeah. And I thought, well, that's really. And I'm not sure why, because. He hasn't written many songs. He's okay, guitar player. His voice is okay. But there's an aura where you have to listen. And then anybody spent until we've done gigs in Ireland, you go to any hotel late at night and all the young people will all get together and start singing Christy Moore songs. I remember I, I learned a lot and I thought, wow, I was so impressed, so impressed. 
I think mm. I broke into his dress room to give him a CD. And I think <laughs> he's just looked at me. He gave me, I had a, my own Loudon Wainwright moment. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, no, Christy Moore. I, yeah. I've, uh, we, we made a guitar for him some years ago. Or he bought a guitar, one of our yeah. guitars. And he sent me this lovely letter and uh, just saying it was the best guitar he'd ever played and he plays it all the time. In fact, he used it on his lockdown, um, cool. all the lockdown stuff. And it, it was, I regard him as the the Irish Bob Dylan, really. You know, he's yeah. kind of, he's up there as, uh, yeah, he's uh, quite a guy. Hey. Well, I've been, all my lockdown videos, I've been using, I mean, you asked me to do a little video for you and I did it. And that's because the first one that I posted on my Patreon page. And since then, I've been using my little hack in the acoustic guitars and doing live streams with that. Right. And it wasn't one I bought directly from you. I got it secondhand from Rob Jackson. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. So, uh, hey, it's been brilliant talking to you, mate. And, you too. Um, you too, Alistair. When do you think you might be back in the UK again? Are you, are you out there for a while? Well, no, because, you know, I miss my kids and I've got... and. Uh, you know my stuffs in England. I'm I'm kind of linked. Yeah, you know, you know, yeah. I do feel home in in England. I'm feeling more mm. at home here, but you know. Can't do Deutsch sprechen. Has to uh, good Deutsch. I mean, the Deutsch is scheiße, sehr scheiße. Yeah, ich auch. Um, I can't think, I can't remember my German, but um, so when you get back. And and things start up again. We've yeah. got to get you down to do some more shows in Canada. I'd love to. I'd love to. I'd love to come and see some guitars of yours because I, on the you, the way you do your like little online brochures of them, they look very sexy. And uh, well, I'd like to yeah. come down and, and actually, uh, because I'm a bit of a gear addict, you know. Well, that'd be super. And uh, well, we'll catch up soon. And once this thing calms down a bit, we would. Me and Booger would love to have you as a guest on our podcast as well. And oh. that, and and that's a le much less civilized affair. There's a lot. There's language involved. It's a little bit sweary, Mary. I, I, I might Bogger's learn something. <laughs> <laughs> It'd be lovely to have you. To, yeah. And hey, I'd love to do that, mate. Well, okay. look after yourself. You too. And, um, I'll, uh, I'll catch you very soon. Okay. Take care. Bye, Alistair. So that was Ezio Lunadai and myself having a bit of a chat, talking about old times and uh, meeting in strange places in Germany. Um, if you enjoyed the show, please give us a review. I believe a five-star review helps us to get the name out there. Um, I'm going to be back next week with another guest. You've been listening to Tuned with Alistair Atkins.